0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. We're in the series on the Ten Commandments, and today we finish up the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And then, God willing, next week we'll get into the first commandment. But this is, um, we've gone through an introduction to the Ten Commandments to find their appropriate place in Scripture, and then from the introduction, we went into the preamble, and uh, today we wrap up the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And so, we're in Exodus chapter 20, I'll read verses 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that it is, is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off when Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Bow with me, please, for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come and pray to you. The altogether glorious triune God who is in and of yourself existent and independent, the one who is the giver of all being to all other beings and who is drawn near to us personally in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our sacrifice and our high priest. And so we come to you in his name, and ask that you would teach us your ways, your law. Please write it upon our hearts. Sanctify us for having learned it and studied it. Make us holy, we pray. Help us to order and structure our lives as you would have us, that we might bring great honor to our King. Liberate us from the ways of sin and wickedness and futility. And may our lives be full of joy and obedience and purpose. Save sinners today. Call them from the land of bondage into the land of freedom, we ask. Strengthen your people in Christ's name, amen. So we're in the Ten Commandments today again, and we live in a lawless age, an age where there is no knowledge of God before the eyes of the people. And lawlessness is the order of the day, and this is why so many are confused. This is why the lives of so many are disordered and chaotic and perceived as futile because they don't know how to structure their lives according to God's purposes and ways and to live in the way that God has designed them to live. The Ten Commandments reveal to us how God has designed us to live, how he has ordered our lives, and how you can live in such a way that You can make sense of the world, you can live with purpose, and you can live with beauty and goodness, the Ten Commandments for this lawless age, trying to do my little part to teach people how to live properly in a day and age where people are left to their own devices and full of absolute confusion and futility. The last two weeks we've been in the preamble of the Ten Commandments, which really grounds the Ten Commandments. The preamble grounds the Ten Commandments. If you want to know why the Ten Commandments are authoritative, well, we look at the preamble. This is the foundation and the basis for the law itself. Why must the law be obeyed? Why is the law binding? Well, we are told why the law must be obeyed and why the law is binding within the preamble to the law. This is the foundation of the law itself is the preamble. And what we learned over these last few weeks is that God is a God who speaks, so really we should be a people who listen. And the God who speaks, the first thing that he tells us about himself is that he is Jehovah, meaning the self-existent being who gives being to all other beings, Jehovah. The one who says, who introduces himself to Moses, is, I am who I am. How can he say that? Because he exists simply because he exists. You exist because God made you. That's why you exist. All that you see around you and hear around you and can touch around you exists because God made it exist, he created it. Everything that you can see is. Created by God and the only Being in essence that does not fall into that category is God himself He is the being who simply is and the one From whom all other beings get their being that's God Jehovah The self-existent being who gives being to all other beings and this God Jehovah not only does he reveal himself as I am, but he revealed himself as your God, which is really wonderful and lovely. Because the one who identifies is the self-being or the self-existent one identifies also himself personally with his people and is his people, we find ourselves is the objects of his love. Affection. He becomes to us as a father or becomes to us as a husband, becomes to us as Jesus is, our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is a brother and a friend. And all of these are said of God. The God who simply is becomes personally involved in our lives so that He says, I am. Your God, the self-existent Jehovah, sets his affections upon us. And it's on the basis of those two points alone that the Ten Commandments should be considered authoritative. That is enough. But even today we find out that there's more. There's more reason to consider the Ten Commandments authoritative and binding. But on those two points, Principles alone, that the God who gives the Ten Commandments is the God who is self-existent, and the God who gives the Ten Commandments is the God who is your God. On the basis of that alone, we should be able to establish the authority of the Ten Commandments. But yet today, we find out that there is even more. The Ten Commandments are the first principle of law. So all true and good law will find their basis in the Ten Commandments. And God is the first principle behind everything, and in this case, law. He is the foundation of law. And law is established on his authority. And that's what the preamble does. It grounds the law. If you are to have no other gods before him, which you're not, supposed to, then you should have no other law before his law. How do you test your loyalty to your God? You test your loyalty to your God by your loyalty to his law. That's how you test your loyalty to your God. And so this is your first principle of law, the Ten Commandments. And today we continue in the preamble to the Ten Commandments, and we'll hopefully learn more about that foundation of law, as we find out that God is sovereign, God is savior, and God is creator, revealed within this preamble. The God who is and the God who identifies with his people is also sovereign, is also savior, and is also creator. And because of this, His law should be obeyed. You must obey His law. You must obey His law. Let's look at first, my first point this morning, and that is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Why should you take His law seriously? Why should you be bound by His law? Why should His law order your life? Because this law comes from not only the God who speaks, not only the God who is, not only the God who is personal, but from the God who is sovereign. Sovereign. Ruler of all. We see in verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God. I looked at that phrase last week. And then we come to the next part of the sentence, which says, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Notice that this sovereign God reveals himself in history. His identity surfaces before the eyes and ears of his people through his mighty acts of history. And through his mighty acts of history, he reveals himself to be sovereign over the nations. This is the sovereign, the ruler of all. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Let's talk about the significance of that statement as it pertains to his sovereignty. Egypt at that point in time had attained international supremacy. It was the global superpower, if you want to call it that. There was a global superpower during the time of Moses, About 1,500 years before Christ, it was Egypt, the internationally supreme state that perceived itself, it's Pharaoh, not only as sovereign over that nation, but sovereign over the other nations. Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt and he was perceived by his people as a man among gods and a God among men. There was a religious aspect to the reign of Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh represented God to the people and people to God. So he would speak in the eyes of the Egyptians, he would speak to the people, the people of Egypt, on behalf of God, and he would speak to God in their eyes on behalf of the people. Which indicates, the minute I say that, that should bring a category to your mind that I've been talking about over the last while, and that is the category of Antichrist. Because Pharaoh identified himself as the prophet, the priest, and the king of his people. As prophet, he spoke to the people on behalf of God. As priest, he spoke to God on behalf of the people. And as king, he exercised sovereignty over the people. That is an Antichrist ruler setting himself up in the place of Christ, who is our only prophet, priest, and king. It's interesting, actually, as you look at the division of offices within the Old Testament, is is the king under the nation, under the state of Israel, the king doesn't operate as a priest, and the priest doesn't operate as a king. They're distinct offices. In fact, a lot of the kings got in trouble for trying to operate as priests, And so there's a distinction in those offices, except for in Christ, where they all find fulfillment. And any head of state or civil government that attempts to control the religion of the people, the worship of the people, is a civil government that has set itself up in the place of Christ because now it is operating as prophet, priest, and king over the people, which Pharaoh did. Hopefully you can understand why we may have made so much noise a couple of years ago. Egypt's promise, or prominence rather, Egypt's prominence is contingent on the fertile Nile region. The Nile provided um, a lot of rich soil and earth and vitality in a land that was otherwise a desert. And so the Nile became a great great source of food and vitality and agriculture, which led to the prosperity of the nation. That's one of the reasons it was prosperous as a nation, Egypt. And Egypt reached its climax of power just around the time of Moses when the law was given. It's amazing to me, And Egypt's trying to function as this regional world government under Pharaoh. And it's something else, if you ask me. If you look at the Bible, and every time a government like this surfaces in the Bible, that's putting itself in the place of Christ, it seems that at that point God starts to work very powerfully in the shadows. You could say that's the case with Babel. You could say that's the case with Egypt, and you can certainly see that's the case, is with Rome. It wasn't too long before the birth of Christ that Julius Caesar um, declared himself as emperor of Rome and turned Rome into his de facto slave camp where he ruled over the entire empire. And then we find that under Christ, when he's born, he's under the rule of Augustus Caesar, which was the heir. Of Roman supremacy, and declared himself, and the Egyptian or the Roman people perceived him as the God King. And so it's it's it shouldn't escape you that it's during the reign of these superpowers that perceive their government as God kings that God begins to work powerfully in the hearts of his people so that the true God-King, Jesus Christ, becomes exalted once again to show his supremacy over the nations. And Egypt perceives itself as sovereign under Pharaoh, a sovereign nation under Pharaoh. And it became a major center of trade in the ancient Near East, and it became a major center of religion especially idolatry, false worship. So much so that Ezekiel notes it in Ezekiel 20, verse 7. Ezekiel says, And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Egypt, this superpower starts to It has its own religion, its own idolatrous religion that is basically a blasphemous religion. And God gets to the point where he has enough of them in the book of Exodus. And not only does this superpower, not only is it full of of idolatry and false religion, but it's also full of sexual immorality. And I'm I'm setting you up to show you God's sovereignty in a moment. But Leviticus 18 verse 3, it says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in your statutes. And then, and then in that chapter, he goes on to list what those nations do in Leviticus 18 and, and, and forbids the activity that they participated in and includes within the forbidden activity in Leviticus 18 the, the deeds of Egypt Incest and sodomy and child molestation and bestiality and adultery, so that you get the perception from reading those laws in Leviticus 18, where all of these terrible sins are forbidden. That yes, Egypt was prosperous, yes, it was a superpower, but it was a nation that was full of not only the worship of idols, but flagrant sexual immorality of every stripe, every letter in the LGBTQ plus um, alphabet, every letter was flagrant and Egypt. And not only was it flagrant with its sexual immorality and its idolatry, but it was a place of sickness. There was disease in this terrible place. Deuteronomy 28, 27 says, The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Or Deuteronomy 28, verse 60, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. And so despite its wealth, despite its power, it was sick and it was rotten. Egypt was sick and rotten. And and so some people like to point to the ancient civilizations that were great and prominent as an example of how man in his perception can attain natural law. Well, I, I think that there, there are, I guess you could say, embers of truth in their discovery of law as they structure their nations. But it is greatly clouded by their sinfulness. So that you can only find true and pure law and true and pure structure in the law of God that's revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. Which is the natural law, but man's sin has so poisoned him that even in the great empires of old, that without God's law, they become cauldrons of idolatry and sexual perversion. And I think that's pretty well the case with all of them. Whether it's Egypt, whether it's the Greeks, or whether it's the Romans, or whether it's our contemporary Western civilization. When you remove the law of God, you might achieve some type of perceived power and you might be able to hold on to a level of perceived power until God forces it out of your hands, but you will not be able to prevent rot from the inside. That was Egypt. It perceived itself as sovereign. It perceived itself as great. It was perceived by the other nations as great and sovereign and they had military, economic prosperity, they had culture and architecture, as you see in some of the remnants of the structures that even exist today in Egypt. They were technologically advanced, but they were a superpower that opposed God. Do you know what God loves to do with superpowers that oppose him? He loves to display his glory with them and break them. So that men and women will see how great he is. So what does he do in this great superpower of Egypt? He sent a series of plagues that provoked Pharaoh to send them out of Egypt. To send the people out so the people may leave Egypt and worship God. And then God leads his people through the Red Sea. You know, this is all before Exodus 20. And then as he leads his people, God parts the Red Sea, and he leads his people through the Red Sea. His people get on the other shore of the Red Sea, and the Red Sea comes in and destroys the armies of Egypt so that the people of Israel, the Hebrews, watch the bodies of the Egyptian horses and the Egyptian soldiers wash up upon the sea. And What, what did that do in God's people? Through history, God taught his people, through that mighty act, he taught them of his sovereignty over the nations. Such that the knowledge of his sovereignty over the nations caused his people to well up with praise. So, for example, Moses, after the, just before the Ten Commandments, about five chapters before, Exodus 15, after the Egyptian soldiers start washing up on the sea, Moses breaks out in song in Exodus 15, verse 1, and says that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God and I would exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he casts into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. You see the picture here? This is the greatest army on the face of the earth. Run by the greatest king on the face of the earth, who rules over the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And in one mighty stroke, God wipes out his army so that their dead bodies and their military equipment start washing up on the seashore, and this ragtag bunch of ex-slaves stand there and watch it happen and sing praises to him. Exodus 15, verse 21, Miriam praises the Lord. It says, And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And so, all of this, what this does is the whole Exodus story, yes, it frees the people of God, but it is a proclamation through his mighty acts in history that he indeed is sovereign over the nations. Some of you want to sit back and you you get nervous about the state of affairs right now, don't you? It really troubles your heart as you look at how wicked and depraved this country has become. It's rotting from the inside out in all levels of society. And you need to remember this story and all the ones like it in Scripture. That it is in moments like the one in which we find ourselves that God seemingly rises and comes in the most ironic means by the most ironic means possible to do what? To make the people know that he is the Lord and that he's sovereign. And so all of this demonstrates his sovereignty even to the point where the apostle Paul notes Pharaoh's purpose in Romans chapter 9 verse 17 where Paul says for the scripture says For this very purpose, I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What does God do? He exalts Pharaoh so that Pharaoh can then become an example to the entire world of what happens to sovereigns who oppose the true sovereign. And so the leaders and rulers of the earth need to be afraid. Because God takes great pleasure in humbling the wicked and rebellious, especially the wicked and rebellious leaders who proclaim their own sovereignty and their own power and refuse to acknowledge His, and He destroys them. So He teaches the world again and again and again that He is the Lord. He is sovereign. And it's this sovereign over the world that gives you the Ten Commandments. So that you can know. <laughs> you want to look to the rulers of the earth and see which one God's going to demonstrate his power in by humbling and breaking them. It's the ones that refuse to uphold his law and make a law for themselves. Those are the ones. All of this was to demonstrate his sovereignty specifically so that his people would know that the Lord is God. Leviticus 11, verse 45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And and you you could do a study of this in Scripture. And there's verse after verse after verse. Where God declares that he is the Lord, how do you know that he's the Lord? The sovereign? The ruler? How do you know? Because he punished Egypt and led his people out of Egypt. It's a wonderful theme in scripture also as you consider the sovereignty of God over the nations that very often, if not always, when his judgment falls upon a nation, it's typically for the good of his people. It's typically for the good of his people. And his judgment coming down so swiftly on Pharaoh and so swiftly upon Egypt was ultimately good for his people because it was through that judgment that his people were released into freedom to establish their own nation. It's typically a very good thing. And so in this historic act... He established himself before the eyes of the people, and not just the eyes of the people, the eyes of the world, is the sovereign. So that by the time the Hebrews get to the border of Canaan and they, and they encounter some of the people in the, in the city of Jericho, the people of Jericho are stirred up in a frenzy because they heard what God did to the Egyptians. His mighty acts of judgment fall upon the wicked and impenitent who think themselves sovereign and advanced, so that all the people of the world will chatter and talk about how terrifying he is. He is sovereign. And in this historic act, he established himself before the eyes of the world is the sovereign of the nations. So that Pharaoh and Egypt are forever the names of the governments and the kingdoms that oppose the Lord and his people, and he will teach them that he is sovereign one way or another. For this reason, it is within the best interests of all nations and government to uphold his law and acknowledge his kingship. Not just in word, but in action. So that his sovereign rule is understood, perceived, and upheld by the proper administration of his law and of his word. And the nations of this earth that refuse to do so will become as Pharaoh. Exhibit A of what to expect. That's what happens to you if you don't do it. So let the kings of the earth fear and let them tremble, for there is a sovereign over them. And it is the Lord your God, as this text said, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, not only is he sovereign, not only is God sovereign, and there's another reason why you should uphold his law because he's the sovereign overall, the king overall. Not only that, but he is Savior. God is Savior to his people. What does the text tell us? As we look at the nature of God as he reveals himself through his mighty acts in history, God is sovereign, God is savior. He is the one who what brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, Egypt was full of wealth and Egypt possessed international power. It was depraved and it was sick and it was rotting from the inside out, and to be rescued from a land like that is a great blessing. It is a salvation. Remember, 2 Peter 2 verse 7 tells us that Lot was greatly distressed in Sodom. And when the righteous dwell amongst the very wicked people, they become greatly distressed. Do you feel that? I did street evangelism on Friday night. I haven't done that in a few years. But I've been busy with other things, and I'm not going to make excuses, but... I did go out on Friday night and did some street evangelism in downtown Kitchener. And I was thankful for the conversations I had and the opportunity to spread the good seed of the gospel in the community. But I left with an overwhelming sense of distress because I was reminded again how ugly and dirty and depraved our city and our country has become, as I saw it. How hardened towards sin and the level of judgment that God is now pouring out upon this land. And I left with a strong level of distress. I live in a little bit of a bubble. And so much enjoy our church community. But to go out on the streets of our downtown core and Witness yet again. And I think it's got worse since the last three years when I was out there last time. I encourage you to go out and do street evangelism too. But it is a distressing thing to be living amongst that level of depravity. And then so for God to lead the people out of Egypt was an act of salvation. Because you're no longer living amongst such distressing behavior. And it should distress you. You shouldn't feel at home in it. It should trouble you right down in your gut if you are in tune with the ways of the Lord. And so to be led out of Egypt is an act of salvation on on the part of God, but not only does he lead them out of Egypt, but it tells us, the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and what? Out of the house of slavery. Egypt was here and has been equated as the house of slavery. Pharaoh, the name Pharaoh, comes from the word great house. And Pharaoh did see the Hebrews is his possession within his house. His possession. They were his possession in his mind. And he was brutal towards them in his enslavement of them. You see it very clearly in Exodus chapter 1, how these people were treated. His slaves, Exodus, one verse ten says, "Come, let us deal shrewdly with them." Speaking of the Pharaoh, speaking of Pharaoh, speaking of the Egypt are the Hebrews. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them, the Hebrews, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. It made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so they likely, with this burden of labor and and. and they likely had no rest. And so as you get to the fourth commandment and the Ten Commandments and you have the, uh, the commandment of Sabbath, it's, it's a great blessing because could you imagine working ruthlessly and tirelessly every day with no rest so that you can't even tell the difference between weeks? I don't know what week it is. Every day is just the same as the other one. So when, the God, when God gives the commandment to Sabbath rest in the fourth commandment, It is a welcome break and act of liberty and release for the people. So that their days and their years are now divided by weeks. And it's not just one dark mess of misery that they have to deal with. And so they likely had no Sabbaths, and therefore, in releasing them from Egypt, God released them from slavery and he saved them into freedom. He's a savior. And we should really see the Ten Commandments as God's law of liberty. For example, even James calls it that. James chapter 1, verse 25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. James chapter 2, verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So, the Ten Commandments should be seen as the law of liberty because they are now ruled no longer by the whims of men, but now they are ruled by a God who is not a man, not like men, who change every day. His law is fixed, his law is unchanging, his law is understandable, his law makes sense. His law protects them from other people. His law even commands rest one day in seven, so all men, not just kings, are given the opportunity to rest. The great design of God's law is that it is designed not as a law to enslave you, but as a law to protect you. To protect you from false worship, to protect you from other men who would steal your property or steal your wife. Or steal your life? Or steal your freedom? This is what the Ten Commandments are designed to do. And it is a Ten Commandments that is for all men. High and low. So that everyone is now afforded protection and the Pharaoh can't just walk into your home at his own whim and say, no, I like your wife, I'll take her. I like your stuff, I'll take it. You spoke wrong of me, I'll kill you and take your life. This is what the Ten Commandments do. They protect you. And so all of a sudden, the people are released by the God who saves them. And they're put in this place where they have one law that is simple and understandable. And is designed to protect them. And now, for the very first time on the pages of Scripture, we have a free people. A nation that is free. Free to protect its own property. Free to protect its own family. Free to rest one day in seven. It's really a glorious sight. And so God saves them. And what I want you to notice is that the salvation that comes from God is not contingent upon the obedience to his law because he delivers the law after he saves them. His salvation is an act of sovereign grace. He saves them and then delivers the law and gives it to them. You can't see the Ten Commandments as a burden. They they were given to a people who God had just freed, and therefore they weren't given to a people that God was enslaving with burdens. The freest nations in the world, by the way, are the ones that uphold God's law. The Sixth Commandment gives you the right to live. The Eighth Commandment, which is the forbidding of stealing and theft, gives you the right to your own private property, and not only the right to your own private property, but the right to use it for economic gain. So within the Eighth Commandment is embedded free enterprise. All of a sudden, the people have free enterprise, because they can now use their property and their wealth to make more property and more wealth. It's free. This is freedom. And the right to have their own reputation protected in the ninth commandment. And the right to a fair trial with the assumption of innocence in the ninth commandment. And the right to rest and work according to the fourth commandment. So when you remove God's law, you become slaves to other men is what I'm trying to say. And this is the trick that we fell into as a society. As people thought a few generations ago, well, if we just... Remove God's law, then we'll truly be free to self-express and live the way that we want to live in our hearts, but that's a little fancy trick of the devil to all of a sudden to over time make you slaves to other men. So that now what happens is dictators and tyrants rise up, and you are no longer protected by this transcendent law that comes from a transcendent God, and there we find ourselves today. And so the God is the Savior. He removes these people out of bondage. And when you remove God's law, you become slave to others, other men. And just as God saved the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery, he, sla- he saved us from the slavery of sin. Hebrews were enslaved to the whims of depraved Egyptians, and we were enslaved to the whims of our depraved hearts and the whims of the depravity of other people's hearts. If you look at the world today, the people that do not want to obey God's law, where are they tossed to and fro by? They're tossed to and fro by their own carnal desires and the carnal desires that people teach them to have. They're slaves. It's through the knowledge of God that we find freedom. And so God has released us from this slavery and bondage that we might serve him And the greatest tyrant that is coming after you is not the tyrant that is in the legislature at at Queen's Park, not the tyrant that that is in Ottawa, but it is the tyrant that is in your own heart. This is your most dangerous enemy. If you've come to this church simply because you want to oppose the tyranny at Queen's Park or oppose the tyranny in Ottawa, you've got problems because your greatest problem is not Doug Ford and it's not Justin Trudeau. Those guys are problems, but your greatest problem is you in your heart. That's your greatest enemy. And the same thing is true for you who are raising children. Say, well, if I just put my kids in a public school or in a private school or if I just homeschool my kids and I just protect them from the ways of the world, then, then they're gonna be okay. I'll protect them from the world. No, the biggest threat to your children is not the world. The biggest threat to your children is the depravity of their own hearts. Nobody sheltered their kids better than Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel were the first homeschool kids. That's not a slam on homeschooling. Okay, those of you who are doing it, God bless you. But just remember that your enemy... Your kid's greatest enemy is their own hearts, and you have to teach them to govern their own hearts, self-govern by the grace of God. And Jesus Christ came to release us from the bondage and tyranny that is bound up in the hearts of depraved men, which all of us once were. The the saving power of God brought the Hebrews out of Egyptian bondage, and the saving power of God brought us out of the bondage to sin. And because He saves, He is prerogative to order our lives with law. Matthew Henry said, By redeeming them, He required a further right to rule them. They owed their service to Him, to whom they owed their freedom and whose they were by purchase. We are not our own, in other words. We are bought with a price. The Hebrews were bought with a price, so God has a right to order their lives. You were bought with a price if you're a Christian, and he has a right to order your life. Your life is not your own. He owns you. And he will order your life in the most beautiful, wonderful way possible, if you just trust him. Those are your options. So what have we looked at? Now we've seen that God is sovereign. God is Savior, because He's sovereign. Because He's Savior, we owe Him obedience to His law. And then beyond that, what do we find in the Ten Commandments? Well, that God is Creator. He is a sovereign Savior who creates. A sovereign Savior who creates. Well, where do we find this? Well, the Ten Commandments are the ten words. You you, you might have heard me use the word Decalogue at times. It's just simply, it simply means ten words. So the Ten Commandments are ten words. And on the first page of the Bible, God created the world with ten commandments. Ten commandments. What were his ten commandments? Ten times in the creation account, it says, and God said ten times. And God said ten times. And God said ten times. It occurs ten times. And so it's not a coincidence. It's intentional that the first creation was with ten commandments of God. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said ten times. And so the creation of a new nation Under the rule of his law, a free nation, the nation of Israel, under the rule of his law, comes with ten commandments. God said ten things to them. And as God created the world with ten words, he's here creating the nation with ten words, ten commandments. This is a new creation that is occurring here. Where he's commanding this, picture him in the Garden of Eden speaking and creating the world, and now where he is speaking and he's giving this law, he's creating a people. So these are a people who are marked by the freedom that comes to the joyful obedience to God's law that springs from lives that have been redeemed. And this is what he does with the church, by the way. As he redeems us from the slavery of sin, he redeems us from our own carnality, he redeems us from operating under the rule of the whims of men, and then he redeems us to live under his rule, so that our obedience to the Ten Commandments does not come from hearts that want to say, hey, I'm saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. No, it comes from hearts that say, he's redeemed me, I'm a new creature, so I get to live the way he wants me to live. The nation he created with ten words would provide a Messiah who would create a new creation by the second birth. And because he is creator, we are bound to his rule. He is sovereign. He is savior. He is creator. All three of those things. And then as I noted the last few weeks, he's the one who speaks. He is the I am, the Jehovah. And he is your God. So you add all these things together and you say, he definitely has authority to give law, definitely. This law is authoritative and we are bound to it. The sovereign savior who creates. And if we learn anything from this, we should know that our nation like Egypt, I'll give you some applications here, i will close up. Our nation like Egypt will pay for its evils and bad things will happen. Things can't keep going the way they're going without very bad things happening to our country. I don't know what's going to happen, but bad things are going to happen, and things are going to get weird, and weirder and weirder until there's repentance, but even in the judgment of God that he is and will pour out upon our nation, he will bless his people through it somehow, because he always does, so we need not fear that, and in fact, we should desire to live in a righteous nation which lives under God's law. It should be our desire to do so. During the Puritan era, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, commenting on the Ten Commandments, made reference to his own nation, England. And he said, see the goodness of God to our nation, England, in bringing us out of mystic Egypt, delivering them from see He said it was enslaved by popery or Roman Catholicism which is Romish idolatry and causing the light of his truth to break forth gloriously among us. Certainly under Cromwell, England, England's churches prospered as they were led by Puritans, and Puritanism was free in England. So the people restored true worship and true order. And Thomas Watson went on to say, Let us pray that God would keep our English nation from the defilements of Egypt, that it may not be again overspread with superstition and idolatry. And we should pray for our nation today and always that we would be free from the defilements of Egypt because we are once again as a people completely overcome and defiled by idolatry and evil and lawlessness. And by way of application, we should see God is the legitimate lawgiver and that all legitimate laws will finally come from his law. They will be able to be derived in the constitution of nature, which is the Ten Commandments itself. This should be the basis of all law. And his right to legislate is God Almighty, comes from his self-existence, his personal relationship with his people, and his sovereignty over the world and the nations, his Ability as savior of the people that he saved us and he being the creator. His right to legislate is grounded in all of that which we see in the preamble. Self-existence, personal relationship with his people, sovereignty, savior, creator. And this is the one to whom all must answer for their lawbreaking. So you you look at the 10 commandments, boy, I'm a lawbreaker. You're gonna answer to this God that I just talked about. I mean, you're not answering to a Santa Claus in the sky. You're answering to the self-existent creator who holds sway over the nations, the sovereign for lawbreaking. breaking That ought to strike dread right into your heart if you do not know Christ. And that ought to drive you to the only one that can save you from this dreadful God. And that's Christ. Your only hope is to run to Christ because you are a lawbreaker and you've broken the law of this sovereign. And as rebels, he invites you to come and be forgiven and pardoned of all of your treason. And be restored into his kingdom. Come to Jesus today. And for the believer, our obedience springs not from a desire to be saved by obedience, no. And our obedience doesn't even spring from a fear of hell, really. Our obedience springs from a love for the one who redeemed us. So that we can say with John and 1 John 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. And because he first loved us, we trust him. And we follow him.